Lord, how we love you. How we desire to be set apart unto you. How we desire to be a people for your own possession. Your own special people, God. Ones that would bless your heart, God. Ones that would bring pleasure to you and delight to you. And Lord, give us revelation on what it is that causes delight to be released in the heart of God. What we can do to cause pleasure to erupt in the divine. So Lord, I'm asking in the name of Jesus, release the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The knowledge of you that we might know you and what pleases your heart. God, I'm asking you'd speak to us. Holy Spirit, come. Come. Let me speak as an oracle. In the name of Jesus, we give you thanks. Good. And everybody that agreed said amen. All right, good. Gonna, um, we're going to stay along the same themes as we've been for the last couple months. We're going to shift slightly. We're gonna, it's not exactly the same series, but uh, it's the same thoughts. And so we're just going to continue along the same path. Uh, we're in a, as a house, a time of fasting and prayer unto uh, the Sermon on the Mount being formed in us as a community. And that, that lifestyle and the value system that's found in the Sermon on the Mount unto that reality be, being formed in us. And we realize we need divine assistance. Have you ever come to anything in God and then you realize there's no way I can step a, a, a bit further unless God releases divine assistance. That's called grace. Unless God releases divine enablement to me so that I can do what is before me. And so we feel like we're in that place right now. We feel like unless God releases divine enablement, grace unto us, these thoughts and these, these preachings and these teachings... They're really going to just stay in uh, concept mode, and they're not going to become rock. You know, he said, if, if you hear the sayings and you do not do them, they're sand. But if you hear the sayings and you do them, they're rock. And that's what we want. We want the foundation of rock underneath our feet, where our lives embrace the realities of these things, but we also walk them out. And so we're in this season where we're realizing that without divine enablement, we can't go any further. And so that's what we're asking the Lord to, to do and to work in us as we fast. We're not earning anything from the Lord, but we're putting ourselves in a place of voluntary weakness, believing that the grace of God will be strong on our behalf. And so tonight I want to talk about the beauty of myrrh, the fragrance of death. The beauty of myrrh, the fragrance of death. Nice happy title. It is joyful, though. It ends in joy. And so here's where I'm starting. In order for us to embrace a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, we recognize that there must be a death to us. And what that means is this. Because the value system of the kingdom of God is so contrary with the value system of this, of this world. The value system of the kingdom of God is what's found in the Sermon on the Mount. So for us to embrace the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, we realize we must die to the propensity of our hearts to embrace the spirit of this age or the system of this world. And all we have to do to embrace the spirit of this age is give ourselves to the lust of the flesh. That's what Ephesians 2 says. 
verses 1 through 3, it tells us that if we will fulfill the lusts of our flesh, we will uh, walk according to the course of this age, according to the spirit of the age. And so we recognize that the, the eight or ten times that the New Testament says, put to death your flesh, that that is a, an absolute essential reality if we're going to walk a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. And so we want to embrace the value system of the kingdom of God. And so we're coming to this and recognizing there must be a death in us. And it's a death to the world system, a death to the spirit of the age, a death to the spirit of mammon. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And a death to our flesh. There's got to be a death that happens for us to embrace this lifestyle. And Paul, in Galatians 2, he discusses the reality of a death. And so he says it here. Verse 19. says, I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What he's discussing is coming to the place of a final death, the crucifixion with Christ. This is not, there is a a positional reality, I'm just getting my theology out there for you. There's a positional reality that we embrace when we say yes to Jesus that is the death to our, our, our sin nature and the death to who we were and what we had bought for ourselves in sin. But this is, he's talking about a, an ultimate death. He's talking about a, a final death that's after being born again. And what he's talking about is uh, the crucifixion of the life of personal passions. He's talking about coming to the place where it's no longer you, but Christ. He's talking about spirit possession. It's an ultimate death. It's, it's, it's living a life where you've sort of passed the line and all of a sudden, all the raging issues that were sort of question marks, that's the, that's the point. All the question marks sort of go away and the life that you now lead is possessed of the Spirit of Christ. All the uh, identity issues, all the back and forth, all the toss to and fro All the immaturity of life, it's sort of a click over and the issues are settled. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. He's talking about an ultimate death. See, it's an ultimate death that brings us to that place. A final death. and, And here's the tension that Paul gives us because in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says, I die daily. But in Galatians 2, 20, he says, I have been crucified. And he's talking about this this tension of experiencing an ultimate death that, that receives spirit possession and the daily reality of, of putting to death the uh, propensity of our, of our flesh and the, of our flesh to desire sin and of the world system to allure us to sin. So there's this both-end reality working, but I believe that there's this ultimate death that God wants to bring us to 
And then the die daily, it's not even a question mark for you. It's just a done deal. You just die. It's, it's, you know, it's not the screaming, kicking, ah, I don't want to go to the altar. I don't want to go to the altar. Oh, okay, I'm on the altar. Oh, ow, that hurts. It's not that anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's, a, there's a, an ultimate death, a final death that takes place, and you go, oh, here it is again. I'm going to die again today. Where's that altar? Let me just lay across it real good. Lay it on me, Lord. You know what I mean? It's really like that. When you, when you click over, when there's the crucified with Christ reality, it's just, it's just a, it's, a, it's the smell of burning flesh. You know, it's the, it's the pain of, you know, quote unquote, uh, giving up desires. But I believe once that crucifixion happens, once that ultimate kind of death happens, the die daily, is a, it's not even a question mark anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? Haven't you had the, the time when you had the opportunity to die daily and that day you just decided not to die? Right? Paul describes that in Romans. He says, you know, certain things I want to do. And he goes, I, I want to live righteously and I don't find myself living righteously. And he goes, and then there's things I don't want to do. It's giving myself to flesh and I give myself to flesh. Well, I believe once the crucified life comes and the spirit possession takes place, the die daily is a foregone conclusion. The question marks are gone. And we realize that to embrace the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, to live it out with rock under our feet, there's got to be an ultimate death. There's got to be a final crucifixion. And who knows the path the Lord uses to take you to that place. You know, God constructs the way to the mountain of myrrh. That's a, a line of the Song of Solomon. He goes, she goes, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh. See, her way is her way, and your way is your way. And the mountain of myrrh is the place of death. See, myrrh is the burial spice. We're going to look at myrrh in a minute. But there is an ultimate death that God has set aside a pathway for each of us to embrace that brings us to the Galatians 2.20 reality. It's real, beloved. God wants to take you to a Galatians 2.20 reality. Why? So you can be you know, writhing in pain and go through an agonizing death? No. There's massive pleasure in it. There's massive life in it. There's resurrection in it. And the challenge that we live in this life is we want the no longer I who live, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. We want the spirit possession reality. We want the signs and wonders on demand. We want the filled with the fullness of God. But we just don't really like the way that death thing sounds. And it's so hard. And so, I want to look at these things. I want to consider what does it mean to end the grace of God, end the grace of God by the invitation of the Lord, to say yes to death in a good way. And by death, I, I'm simply talking about death to the fleshly and lustful desires that we all have. That's what I mean by death. Death to the passions that are in our flesh. just want to be clear so nobody takes this out of context. All right, let's look at Psalm 45. Psalm 
ultimate death brings you to the place where you settle the issue as to whether you will live for your own pleasures or you will live for the pleasure of God. The dying daily is walking this out day by day. See, the challenge is this. We think when we said yes to Jesus that we settled the issue of whether or not we wanted our own pleasures. But many of us said yes to the Jesus that simply gives you more pleasure in this life. We had a a little bit of a skew in, in who it was we said yes to. And we thought that saying yes to Jesus meant everything gets better. I get more money, more happiness, more friends. And it's just rosy. That does not sound like Paul's resume. I mean, read 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 11, and you'll find out the man went through challenges beyond belief. I mean, it says in stripes beyond measure. What does that mean? He goes, I've been whipped more times than I can count. Guys, he was in three shipwrecks. Shipwreck. I'm not talking about a car wreck. I'm talking about the ocean. That's, no. That's hard. How do you get out of three shipwrecks alive? Like, how does that happen? That's crazy. Imprisonments and beatings and fastings often. He goes, in nakedness. Paul didn't have the right clothes a lot of the time. He said yes to the Jesus that was going to... He said yes to the Jesus that was going to make him a worthy partner for himself in the age to come. He said yes to the Jesus who was going to form Paul's life and give him the exact path that would take Paul right into the throes of death so Paul could truly experience resurrection. He didn't say yes to the Jesus that just makes everything happy and it's a rose garden. Because unfortunately, though there's massive blessedness in God, there is no uh, promise that this age, everything just gets better and happier. And, you know, it's just Jesus makes you better and happy in this life. It's just not like that, beloved. We, yeah, okay, I'll just move on. Okay. Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a, is a bridal psalm. Whenever you do a study on Song of Solomon, pull in Psalm 45. It's like the ninth chapter of Song of Solomon. It's right there. And much of the same... Uh, much of the same imagery and the metaphors and much of it's from Song of Solomon is right there in Psalm 45. And so Psalm 45, we get a picture of who Jesus is. And we know through New Testament theology, Hebrews 1 identifies the truths about the king in Psalm 45 are about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45 and attributes these things to Jesus. So we can take the, the king... In Psalm 45, and that's Jesus. And so Psalm 45, verse 7, says, You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. 
Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The writer of Hebrews actually quotes that verse and attributes it to Jesus. And here's what's an astounding truth. The man Christ Jesus is the most joyful man that's ever walked the planet. The most joyful man, full of gladness and full of joy in the Lord, more than any other man that's ever walked the planet, Jesus Christ. And he is the express image of the Father. That's powerful, beloved. In his presence, in the Lord, Psalm 16, verse 11, in his presence, there's fullness of joy. And at his right hand, pleasures evermore. That's God the Father. Now, it's impossible for us to have a grumpy, mean God whose presence is exuding joy in fullness. I'm not talking you're happy because you got, you know, $10 off the coupon or whatever. I'm talking about fullness of joy and pleasure evermore is in his, just in his presence. He is the most joyful thing we've ever imagined. More than a thing, but he's the most joyful one ever. And the man Christ Jesus, while walking the earth, anointed with the oil of gladness far above all his companions, he's glad. God is glad and Jesus is glad and Jesus is the express image of God. That's a stunning reality. Why? Because most of us uh, imagine God to be mostly mad, grumpy, upset. And when we come to God, we come with our head down in shame, wandering, hopefully, maybe he'll like me. And maybe if I somehow say it the right way this time, uh, he'll say yes. And I'm sorry I'm here again, God. I didn't mean to pray this much, but oh, I got to ask for something else. Oh, would you help? Uh, we just kind of throw it at him like that. The truth is, when we walk into his presence, I'm talking about believers in Christ, ones that have a yes in their heart. When we walk into his presence, he goes, yes, sweet, come in here. All right. What is going on? Little man, I've been waiting to see you. And he's got an excitement in joy. There's pleasure in him. The Bible says he takes pleasure in the prayer of the righteous takes pleasure in the prayer of the righteous because come in and ask me something i love this it's how my kingdoms run you're getting it he's in you're so cool i'm so happy and we just cannot imagine that god would look at us that way he's joyful beloved he's joyful god the father is joyful he's a glad god and he anointed jesus He can't anoint Jesus with something he doesn't have. He anointed Jesus with the oil of gladness. How much so? More than any other man, far above all his companions. Far above all his companions means above any man that's ever walked the planet. Now, it's an amazing reality. But here we have it. He goes, I've anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And then in verse 8, we find Jesus and all of his garments happen to be scented with myrrh, aloe, and cassia. 
Now, I want to propose something. Could it be the oil of gladness which the Father put upon Jesus is myrrh, aloe, and cassia? Verse 7, we see the Father anointing Jesus with the oil of gladness. And verse 8, there's so much anointing on Jesus that you can't even distinguish between him and his garments. His garments are scented with myrrh. Could it be that the oil of gladness is myrrh, aloe, and cassia? Which are, those are clearly, any, any of the scholars will tell you, they're all, those are burial spices. They fill the body with the cassia, they anoint the outside with the, oil, uh, with the aloe and the myrrh. Could it be that the oil of gladness that's upon Jesus, the joy that's on him, is the fragrance of death? Huh. Let's take a look. So I get around to this, I start thinking, uh, he's the most joyful man that's ever lived, and he's got this fragrance on him. If you can hear it this way, his favorite cologne is what he's wearing. He's not wearing something he doesn't like. His favorite cologne is what he's wearing. He's, He's joyful beyond, I mean, anybody's imagination. And yet he smells like burial spices. Why is he so happy? Why is he so happy? He's knowing there's death on him. What's making him happy? And I want to propose that the gladness that Jesus carried in his earthly ministry, in his life on the earth, was fully because the revelation of the cross, of the death he was going to endure, but not simply the death, the reward of the death. I want to propose that Jesus Christ, the most joyful man that's ever lived on the planet, was full of joy. He was anointed with the oil of joy, which is the oil of death. It's the myrrh. And he's full of joy because he knew there was a death coming. And for the joy set before him, he wanted that cross. He lived on the earth knowing about the reward of the death that he was going to endure. He lived life in joy, beloved, in joy. Full of joy more than any man. Because he knew there was a reward after the death. He's anointed with the oil of joy and he's fragrant with the smell of death. How does it work? He was looking the entire time for the reward of his sufferings. The entire time he was considering the reward of his own sufferings. And I'm touched with this. I want you to flip over to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. Take a right turn from Psalms. If you hit the major prophets, you've gone too far. Psalm 
Look at chapter 3. Oh, this is good. This is going to get real good in a minute. Verse 6. Solomon, Song of Solomon. The king, Solomon, Song of Solomon. He's a type of Christ. Okay, so when we're talking about Solomon or the king in Song of Solomon, we're talking about Jesus. Okay? So it says, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke? perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the merchant's fragrant powders. Behold, it's Solomon on his couch with 60 valiant men. Oh, this imagery is so awesome. I won't go into any of it. Of the valiant of Israel, they all hold swords being expert in war. Every man has a sword on his thigh because of the fear in the night. And goes on. It describes the gospel couch that he's, that he's being carried upon. Look at verse 11. Go forth, daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Now put your mind around this. The day of his wedding is the day of the gladness of his heart. What was his cologne again? Myrrh. On the day of the gladness of his heart, he's wearing myrrh. It's the, it's, at that point, it's the commemorative scent. What I've gone through to get you. What I embraced because I loved you. Let me put a little bit, a little dabble do me. Here you go. He puts a little on, and he's wearing myrrh on the wedding day. Can I tell you something? On the day when we see the man Christ Jesus... The fragrance of myrrh. I don't know if it's a literal, we'll smell myrrh, but I tell you, the death fragrance will be in our nostrils. And we will fully understand this, that it was the cost of death that Jesus paid to have us, and it was the cost of death that made him glad in his earthly ministry and glad eternally. That seems like such an oxymoron. How could it be that death is what made him glad? For the joy set before him. You are the joy. How does he do this? How does God take death and make it gladness? How does he do that? How does he take a cross and make it resurrection? How does he take torture and make it pure joy? Only God knows. God's the one that does it though. The man Christ Jesus, who's anointed with the fragrance of death, he's anointed with the fragrance of death, is the one who's anointed with the fragrance of joy. It's one and the same. And here's what I want to throw to you. Jesus Christ is our example in all matters that pertain to this life. Is that right? Hello? Jesus Christ is our example in all matters that pertain to this life. Could it be this, that Jesus wants us to embrace joy in this life and that the pathway to joy in this life is death? Could it be that the same oil that's anointing him, the oil of myrrh, the fragrance of death, could it be that that is your pathway to joy at the highest level in this life? 
I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. Anointed with myrrh, anointed with joy. Jesus is our example, and beloved, he is calling us to an ultimate death. And here's what I'm convinced of. Here's what I'm absolutely convinced of, and I believe this is for several in this room. God is wanting, he's targeting, that's what the word I want to say. He's targeting several to bring you to an ultimate death right now. He's targeting you and inviting you to bring you to the place of an ultimate death. And I tell you, though the death may be hard, though it may be gory and, and, and very difficult, there is absolute joy in that pathway. And I believe the Lord is inviting many into that death. With this revelation, though, that it is joy in the highest measure. Some of you really need to hear that as a word from the Lord, for real. There is an ultimate death before you that God is offering to you. It's a crucify with Christ reality. And it is the pathway of death, but it is the pathway of joy. The greatest joy. And that's huge. See, here's what we've got to come to. That our sufferings in this life, our deaths that we die in this life, are not in vain. They're not just a bunch of, you know, divine masochism. God up there trying to be, you know, tough. They're a God who is joy itself. He is joy itself. And He's escorting you into joy and fullness. And He wants to give you the, the revelation, He wants to give me the revelation that there is a reward for our sufferings. Just as Christ Jesus looked to the reward of His sufferings, I tell you, beloved, there's a reward for your sufferings in this life. There's joy on the other side of death. And there's such a, a, a pleasantry in it such a preciousness in it. And God wants to escort us there. He wants to get our vision off of the futile. And what I mean by the futile is the things that are fading. All that's fading, that's pulling your attention. It's telling you, do this, serve this, pay for this, buy this. It will satisfy. It will be the thing that you'll want the most. It'll bring joy. God goes, none of it matters. Get your eye on the reward. What, is he, what was Jesus looking for again? The wedding. In a minute, you're going to be joined with the divine. Now, a minute from eternity's vantage point might be 70 years. He's got to do the math. It might be 70 years. But in a minute, you are going to be joined with the God who's infinite. He's infinite. It's perfect, perfect. He's love, perfect love. He is love. And you're going to be joined with him forever, eternally. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He endured death. And beloved, I believe that our path in this life is for the joy set before us. We endure the crucified life. We say yes to it. These matters are not light. They are weighty. They must be considered, but I believe there's an invitation to many to embrace this. 
If we will look to the wedding day, the day of our greatest glory, it's the, the wedding day, beloved, is the day of our greatest glory. We will then agree that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. So Paul said in Romans 8, he said this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What's he talking about? Was he talking about a dynamic ministry? Was he talking about signs and wonders? Was he talking about power encounters? Was he even talking about third heaven revelations? He had those. He had those. He had a power ministry. He had third heaven revelations. He was blowing it up every city he went to. He was turning it upside down and planting churches. What was he talking about? The glory that will be revealed. He's talking about being partnered with the divine. He's talking about the reward of the age to come. Living in unity with God. Living in unity with God. Ugh! If we can get around it in this life, the sufferings of this age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. I tell you, you will not forfeit one moment of that glory. You will not forfeit one piece of that to indulge in some, you know, temporal pleasure. You'll say, no, I'll suffer in this life to embrace eternal glory. Not just talking about salvation. I'm talking about unison, unity with the man who is God. The uncreated God. Pleasures evermore. Flip over with me to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, and I just want to say this, Colossians 3, the first part, doesn't make full sense unless you read it with the end of Colossians 2. And I'll just give you the paraphrase, Humphrey version of Colossians, end of Colossians 2. He goes, don't make a list of things to do and not to do, because it's no use if you try to make a list. It's no use against the indulgences of your flesh. That's what he's saying at the end of Colossians 2. So then he says... If then, or if therefore, you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Look at this interesting thing. He just said you died, didn't he? Verse 5, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. See, when we do Colossians 3, 
We set our mind on the heavenly. Revelation comes of the reward. Revelation comes of the eternal. Revelation comes of the glory that will be revealed to us. Have you ever just felt frustrated because you're subject to futility? What do I mean? I mean you're living inside the veil of the flesh. The veil of the flesh, you don't, you don't find yourself moving into the place that you were created to live. So you, beloved, were not created for this realm. You weren't created for this age. You were created for evermore. That's what you were created for. You were created for eternity. You were a spirit. And you will live forever. And you were created for eternity. And yet, that truth speaks to us every day. I wasn't made for this life. I wasn't made for that which is fading. I wasn't made for this temporal reality. I wasn't made for any of these temporal pleasures. I was made for something so much bigger. I was made for eternity. We set our minds on eternity. We set our minds on the man Christ Jesus seated at the right hand of God. All of a sudden, we get a, re, a revelation of our citizenship. We start to understand that our citizenship is not of this place. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's in the eternal place. We were made for that place. We weren't made for this realm. Why do we give ourselves and indulge ourselves in this realm when this is not what we were made for, beloved? Oh, we were made for something so much better. So much bigger, brighter, more amazing, more pleasurable, more dynamic. Fill in the blank with your, you know, an uh, adjective. We were made for another place. We were made for heaven. The realm of the eternal. Mm. Philippians, he says it this way. He goes, your citizenship, it's not, he said, your citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body. What does that look like when your lowly body is conformed to the image of His glorious body? That's a day in your future. You're going to put off mortality. You're going to put it off. You're going you're to do away with being tired. Like, we just get done with that. Like, little aches and pains and being tired. Oh, no, you're going to put all that off. You're going to put every natural thing that's veiling you. I'm talking about putting a curtain in front of you between you and God. You're going to put it all off. And you are going to be conformed to the image of His glorious body. That's what he's talking about in Colossians 3 in the beginning. He says, we will appear with Him in glory. In glory. What does that day look like? Not sure, but Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that that is the answer to, to overcoming in this life, persevering in this life, to pressing against the flesh in this life, to refusing the spirit of the age. The answer is looking toward the reward. And beloved, that may be a death for you in this life, but I tell you, the joy of it is the truth of it. Death and joy are the same fragrance something we have to land I'm touched with Jesus who loves the fragrance of death he loves the fragrance of death it's his, it's his favorite 
cologne. It's his favorite aroma. It's on him every time we see him. What is that? What is it about Jesus? He loves this. He loves the smell of death. So realizing it's a delight to his heart. It's pleasure to the heart of God when his people will willingly perfume themselves with death. It's delight. It's pleasure to his heart when his people will willingly abandon themselves to death in this age. When they will cut off, put off all the desires of the earthly passions, it is a fragrance and aroma of pleasure to the Lord. I started looking at that, I was like, that's so different than the way that this world tells us to live. It's so opposite. The world tells you to get all you can in this life. Get all the pleasure you can. Live for your highest pleasure in this life. And Jesus goes, if you will put off all the passions within you that long for pleasure in this life, and you look for the abiding pleasure, you look for the eternal pleasure, and put all those earthly things off, he goes, oh, that aroma, I like that smell. It's delight to my heart. Who will live that way in this life? Who will live embracing myrrh? Willingly anointing themselves with myrrh in this life. Who will live beautifying themselves with myrrh to delight the heart of God? To delight His heart. I'm not talking about religious striving. I'm talking about pleasure in the Godhead that's released when frail, broken humans in weakness refuse the allures of the spirit of the age. I'm telling you, when you refuse the allure of the spirit of the age, you say yes to the value system of the kingdom of God, there is pleasure and delight released in the heart of God. Can you imagine? God is delighted crescendos of ecstasy happen in God can you imagine who will live this life perfuming themselves with myrrh in the book of Esther chapter 2 verse 12 just want to quote that verse it says that Esther spent six months she had 12 months of beauty treatments the first six months all it was was myrrh every day beautifying herself for the king. The, the last six months, it doesn't even name what the spices are used. They don't even mention them. It says, good smelling ointments. But the first six months, myrrh, myrrh, myrrh. Why? To get her ready for the king. Can I tell you something, beloved? There is a path of myrrh for us. There is a mountain of myrrh for us in this life. There is an ultimate death that God wants to bring you to. And I'm, not, I'm telling you, it's not a grudging thing. It's, I mean, it might be painful to your flesh in this life, but I'm telling you, it releases joy and blessedness in God. Delight in His heart every time you refuse the spirit of the age. You anoint yourself with death. Jesus for the joy set before him he endured the cross 
And I believe he's calling us to get a vision of the joy and to endure the cross. To get a vision of the blessedness and to endure death. To get a vision of life and real joy and eternity and real joy and embrace the crucifixion of Galatians 2.20. An ultimate death. An ultimate death. Oh, that God would take us to an ultimate death. That we could live possessed with the Spirit of God. Oh, that God would take us to the end of ourselves. I mean, to the end of ourselves. All the propensities, all the lusts of my flesh, all the imaginations of my mind, all the earthly things that I desire. Oh, that God would take me to the end of myself. I die. For joy. For pleasure. For real pleasure. Everything that I've got to quote unquote die to tells me that it's more pleasing than God. It tells me it's more pleasing than God. It's a lie every time. For the joy set before me that I'd endure the cross. Just like Jesus. For the joy set before me that I'd endure it. One last verse. Psalm 116. How are we doing? You guys still there? Give us an ultimate death, God. Give us an ultimate death, God. Give us a Galatians 2.20, Jesus. Look at this verse, verse 15. In light of the way I've been discussing tonight, consider this verse in that lens. Precious in the sight of the Lord, precious in the eyes of the Lord, is the death of his saints. Precious. There's a belovedness, there's a sweetness, there's a preciousness that goes on in God's heart when his people will willingly give themselves to myrrh. Here's the unique thing. We don't, gra- we don't grasp this. But the offering of the life that's given to the path of myrrh, given to the, the, the mountain of myrrh, the path of death, the offering of the life that's given that way, it automatically escorts us into intimacy and fellowship that we don't comprehend. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings conformed to the image of his death I want to propose to you that the power of his resurrection is just the entrance it takes us to the path of sufferings conforms us to the image of his death in this life and in there is the greatest depth of intimacy that we can find because the man Christ Jesus, he loves the fragrance of death. He loves the beauty of myrrh. He loves it. Oh, that we would be a, a people that would give ourselves to this. He's drawing us as a community into this and I believe he is targeting several. He's targeting probably many, many to bring us to an ultimate death. Death. 
in view of this stuff, in view of these thoughts, by God's grace, there is a buffeting of the body. There is a putting off the members, the carnal nature. There's a pushing against the spirit of the age. And I'm telling you, it's not just religious duty and, and pushing against things for the sake of a religious badge. What it is is entering into intimacy and pleasure and the abundance, the fullness of joy, just as the man Christ Jesus. If we can get our minds around it, the big point, if we can get our minds around it, the fragrance of death, the, the anointing of death is the anointing of joy for you. It is the anointing of joy for you.